Would you take out your Bibles and we're going to get started with our third installment in the series through the book of Hebrews entitled Our Faithful High Priest and I entitled this morning's message Like Him in Every Way. I'm going to be giving a short intro and then we'll dive into the fill in the blank on the sheet that was handed to you at the front door so if you could get that out as well. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the chair in front of you to use for today, and I'll give you the page numbers on that as well. Um, We uh, obviously in this series are going through some very challenging material, and so it's been a little bit uh, of paranoia for me on a day-by-day basis that I am not a complete heretic, so I'm trying to wrap my brain around this stuff and present it to you as easy as I can so that we can all wrestle with it together. I want to be clear on a couple things. One, I don't know everything. Uh, I don't know all the answers on this. Um, And number two, um, I am not going to spoon feed you what I do know. All right. One of the things about being at church here is that uh, we're trying to train you to be critical thinkers and know how to work the Bible for yourself to be able to know what it says and have a biblical reason why. You don't always have to agree with perhaps my opinion on things. I usually lay stuff out for you and then say, well, this kind of looks like where I'm headed, but I need you to know that there are brilliant people on both sides. So there's going to be some of that this morning as well. But we can begin with something that we are perhaps familiar with that is far less controversial, um, but something that is pretty powerful if you chew on it for a bit. So let me begin with two stories about Jesus. The first one is at the beginning of his ministry when he launched it, he walked out into a wilderness area where there was a man, Jesus' cousin by the name of John. We know him as John the Baptist. He was out there and he was baptizing people and preaching repentance And Jesus of Nazareth comes out into the desert area and he says, I need to be baptized by you. Now, of course, John had already said to his own followers, that's the Lamb of God. You want to follow that guy? So the whole idea that he would come up to him and say, you need to baptize me, that was bizarre. John said, I can't do that. And Jesus said, hold on a second. I need you to work with me on this one. So as he's walking him into the water and lowering him down, To immerse him, it says, the spirit descended like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven. Now, to be able to stand there and hear something like that would be extraordinary. That you would actually hear an audible voice from the Father. Almighty God speaks down from out of the sky and says a very short phrase. This is my beloved son. In whom I am well pleased. Later on in Jesus' ministry, he took three of his best friends, Peter, James, and John. And they went up onto a mountain and they were going to go up and pray and spend some time together. They had no idea what was in store. As they get up onto this mountain, they begin to see that Jesus begins to glow. His clothes become like dazzling white. And the Bible says that he was transfigured. Before their very eyes, whatever that means, they 
turn around and there is Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah, two guys that for all practical purposes have been dead for a really long time. That's freaky. So of course, Peter has to say something stupid. That's kind of his MO. And so he said, Hey man, I gotta, let me just set up some tents for you guys. So you're comfortable because that's really a dumb phrase. If they just showed up out of nowhere, they don't need your tent. All right. They're pretty good. All right. Now, while they're trying to talk about this, a huge cloud envelops them. And out of that cloud comes a voice again from heaven. The father speaks audibly again. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. All right. Now, as much as we like to think that in the Old Testament and maybe in the New Testament times that God was consistently talking to everybody audibly, that is simply not true. It is a great rarity that God ever goes audible. Even with prophets, he would speak many times in visions and in dreams, and they would have ideas of what God would want them to say, and they were sorting it out. But not everybody got a chance to hear from God. Very few people ever in history have been able to hear the audible voice of God. But right there, we have the Father speaking from heaven direct, not even through anybody else. And what was his message? His message was, this is my son. He does what I want. Pay attention to him. Why is that important? Because we want to please our heavenly father. And if you want to do that, we have a tangible example of how to do that in the person of Jesus Christ. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. We must be like the son to please God. We must be like the son to please God. And that is why along throughout the years we picked up this name of Christian. A mimic of Christ, a little modeling we're chasing after Jesus. We're trying to be like him, think like him, act like him, behave like him, teach like him, share like him, love like him. That's what the Christian title is all about, is that we might morph into becoming more and more like him every day. Why? Because we know for sure that what he does and how he handles things is pleasing to the father. We know that for sure. So we try to do what he does. Make sense? All right. Now, as we transition into this and learning how to be like him, we're back into the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews, what the author has been trying to do is dialogue with a group of people that apparently have really been struggling with this idea of whether or not to continue to pursue Christianity the way they have. There's massive persecution coming, and some of them are tempted to bail out and go back to traditional Judaism because it's familiar and they've always been trained Abraham Moses all these guys the law and so they thought maybe I'll go back to something that is safe something that I know for sure will protect me the author says you cannot do that you can't do that for at least two reasons one is it all actually culminates back to Jesus. Jesus is greater than anything you can imagine. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the law and systematically makes that argument while at the same time is warning them and saying, if you do that, if you, if you walk away from the Savior, 
There's drastic and dire consequences. You cannot do that. You cannot trust in a law. So, Hebrews leaves us a little bit feeling schizophrenic about what's happening in the book. Sometimes we read it and we go, man, that's the most encouraging thing ever. I love this book. I'm all pumped up about who Jesus is and it's revealing all these powerful things. And wow, this is so fun. The next time we feel horrible, shaky about our faith. Oh my gosh, I'm not saved at all. And I think God hates me. It's like, well, well, is it encouraging or not? Well, it depends on what we're talking about. How do you encourage people while at the same time severely warning them without pulling them back and forth? So you're going to see some of that in today's message. But in order to understand why the author would even have to argue why Jesus is greater than Moses, we need to get out of modern day American mindset and get back into ancient Jewish mindset because, and I'm about to say the understatement of the day. To the Jews, Moses is a big deal. Why is Moses a big deal? First of all, this is not a knock on Moses when we start saying Jesus is greater than Moses. Because here's the bottom line. Moses is awesome. Moses is great in all sorts of ways. So let me explain why he is held in such high regard by the Jewish people. Go back to a little bit of history with you and share a little bit of that. But make no mistake, it's apples and oranges. You have a created being, an amazing man, and the creator, the uncaused cause, the eternal one. All right, no, we're not, com- we're not comparing the two as if there's any possible competition. But let's reflect on why Moses is a big deal. I wrote down a couple ideas. Let's start with the first one. Everybody remember the burning bush incident? It's kind of a popular one, right? You're walking through the desert, you're watching sheep, you assume that nobody knows you're there. You're kind of incognito, hidden, nobody cares about you anymore. You used to be a big deal, but for 40 years, you've been in seclusion. You walk up and you see a bush burning. Hey, look, that bush is burning. That's odd. But what's weirder is it's not burning up, it's just burning. Well, that's even weirder. Then it starts talking to you. Now, that is extraordinarily weird. All right? You've got to take some serious medication to have that happen, right? So, he goes up, and, it's, and this voice comes out, and it starts saying, God's talking to him. Take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy. And here's the bottom line. God called Moses personally and audibly. That's pretty powerful. All right. Another reason why they thought he was a big deal is loaded into one simple phrase. And God spoke with Moses face to face. That's a really big deal. Why? Well, I'm going to have you read a passage with me before we get into Hebrews. Can you turn with me to the book of Numbers? It's in the Old Testament. It's almost all the way to the left. It goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. So it's the fourth book in the Bible. Numbers chapter 12, verse 6. It's page 120 in the Bibles that are under your seats. Makes it a little bit easier to follow along there. Numbers chapter 12, verse 6. Let me give you the background of this story. Moses had two siblings, Miriam and Aaron. 
Miriam and Aaron got a little ticked off because Moses was such a big deal that everybody called him the leader and he's the one that did the miracles and they started getting jealous about this idea and they dared to challenge him. We're just as big and bad as you are. We're from the same family. Who do you think you are, right? Well, Moses was known as the most meek man on the face of the earth. That means he was gentle and quiet and submissive. So they could challenge him and he's not going to try to defend himself. So God steps in and defends him personally. Take a look at this passage with me. Numbers 12, 6. And he, meaning God, said, hear my words. He's talking to Miriam and Aaron. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, but not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth. That's that same phrase we use nowadays as face to face. Clearly, and not in riddles, he beholds the form of Yahweh. He has seen me. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. Well, remember how this story goes. Miriam, after he leaves, is leprous, full of leprosy. And Moses has to intercede for her. Why? So that she would submit under him again. All right. Regardless of the rest of the pieces of that story, how cool is it that God would defend you verbally? Step in and say, I don't know about everybody else. I'm telling you this guy's special to me. That's my friend. I talk with him back and forth, just like we're having a conversation. I listen to him. I allow him to challenge against me, and I push back on him. I allow him to ask me questions. I do things for him that I don't do for anybody else. You begin to see why he's such an important figure. All right, well, it gets even further. Perhaps the largest deal to the Jewish people is that Moses was given the Ten Commandments personally. To the Jewish community, the law of God is everything. If you look in modern-day Judaism, if you look in modern-day Jerusalem, if you look in modern orthodoxy, Everything they do is hinged on doing it according to the law of God, which they know as the law of Moses. He's the one that communicated what God wanted and what God didn't want. Most of what we know in the Old Testament until Jesus arrived, some of the most in-depth things we know about the nature of God came directly through Moses. He had insider information. And if the law is a big part of your community and he's the one that communicated it to you, of course he's a big deal. Now, is Abraham probably a bigger deal? Sure, he's the father of all the Jewish people. But as far as what he accomplished and what he did, Moses takes top billing. Additionally, we have a story in Exodus 33 and 34 where Moses asked God for a favor. God, if I'm going to be your man and talk to your people, I want to see your glory. Will you show me what you look like? He's already asked him, what's your name? And they had all these dialogues, but this is later on. He says, I want to see you in your full glory. And God literally talks back to him and says, all right, I can do that. Now, did he need to do that? No, that's not necessary. But like a friend, he he said, all right, I'll make a little tailoring to you. 
However, you can't see my face because you'd explode and die. So we're not going to do that. What I can do, however, is let you see the back of me, which is super comical. He comes up with this idea where Moses is hiding out in this little corner of the rock and he puts his hand by him and then he moves past him. And then he says, you can see my back. Now, if he can cover with his hand, it's probably big, big God looking thing, right? So as he goes by, then he can see like God's jersey, right? You know, it says 777 on the back and has Yahweh across the top. And, and Moses is like, that's totally him, right? Now, he didn't need to do that, but he did. And he said, and as he passed by, he proclaimed what he's really like. I'm a gracious and compassionate God, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving sin. Will I hold people accountable? Yes. But is my desire to bless? Yes. These things he revealed to Moses. Another piece is Moses' leadership. Now, does everybody remember how Moses' life went in 40-year chunks? Have we all tracked on that one? Okay, he died at 120. That makes some pretty clean 40-year chunks. 40 years he's in Egypt. That's when he was starting to think he was something. For 40 years he was in the desert, convinced that he was nothing. And then 40 years he led Israel. Now, we look at that and we say, oh, that is pretty cool. He is a pretty powerful leader. Hold on. Moses led them from Egypt through the desert. Imagine moving, now let's use some conservative estimates, 600,000 people, right? Maybe going through there and over a 40-year period, we're at what, 2 million? He's moving a million people through the desert in the worst possible circumstances with little to no resources, And he's doing it personally. How awesome of a leader do you have to be to get that done? King David didn't have to do it like that. King Saul didn't have to do it like that. But Moses did. He was an extraordinary leader through the power of God. Did he want to be? No. Was he? Yes. Finally, let me cite this. He did a couple cool miracles. You remember those? Kind of like parting the Red Sea, speaking to a rock and water pours out. Through the power of God, he was able to make water uh, from bitter to sweet. He's the one that, uh, through his prayers, manna shows up and the quail blow in. And I mean, all these incredible, incredible stories that God did through him, not to mention the 10 most devastating plagues to ever come on mankind against the nation of Egypt. Frogs, flies, gnats, darkness, death through the staff and power and hands of a man named Moses. Is it any wonder why they think he's kind of a big deal? Yeah. But this group that this author is talking to has allowed Moses to be such a big deal that it's starting to get above the Messiah. And the author said, we're not doing that. Let me correct it for you. That's where we pick it up in Hebrews. Would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1? Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, page 1002. You're going to go almost all the way to the right. Polar opposite side of the Bible from where we were at. Now I'm going to read through the chapter. We're going to cover the entire chapter today. And I'm going to read through it all the way so that we can kind of get a groove 
and then I'll go back and tear it apart. So let's pray for the word. Heavenly Father, as we engage with your word, we are quite sure that we don't know what it means. But you do. You revealed it as you did through the author that you did, and it says what you want. Lord, help us to understand what we need to know. Don't allow a pastor, Lord, to derail us. Don't allow a man's opinion to skew the word of God. We pray that you would directly speak to us through your word in a powerful way that we might change. Submit to you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's read it. Here we go. Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and our high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more glory than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living god but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin for we have come to share in christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end as it is said today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion for who were those who heard and yet rebelled was it not all those who left egypt led by moses with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. All right, we got a groove. Let's do it. Let's back up all the way to verse one. Here we go. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in heavenly calling. All right, first pause. Remember I told you in the intro to this book, we don't know who he's writing to. We don't know for sure. He doesn't say, but we have clues. So we play detective. We just received three clues. The reason why it's important to know who he's writing to is because it changes the tone of the letter. Why? Well, let's look at the options. If he's speaking to Christians, we're Christians. So whatever he says to them may well apply to us, right? Is he speaking only to Orthodox Jews? If so, then maybe it doesn't apply to us. Is he speaking to Gentiles? If so, then maybe some of that ties into us because the majority of us are Gentiles. So who's he speaking to? Many teachers and scholars have fallen into the trap where they look at what the book seems to say 
And then they read back and say, he must be talking to this type of person just so it fits within their theology. That is not how you're supposed to do it. We're receiving three clues. What are the clues? First of all, he calls them brothers. You don't call people brothers unless you're attached to them in some way that you identify with them as a group. Now, if he's a Jew talking to Jews, he can call them brothers because Jews are brothers to other Jews. That's clear. If he's referring to himself as a believer, as a Christian, and he's calling them brothers, then it is likely that they are Christians. What's intriguing is that he doesn't just call them brothers. He calls them holy brothers. Now, holy can mean two things. It can either mean like God or pure and righteous, or it can mean marked out for a special purpose. Once again, it applies to Jews and Gentiles. Jews are holy in the sense that they're a special people that God works through in a special way. They're marked out for a special purpose. But to use holy brothers every other time that's used is by Christians for Christians. Then he says one last clue, who share in a heavenly calling. Now we're starting to exclude out Orthodox Judaism and referring more to the Christian side of things because that's not how Jews would refer to other Jews. It appears that he's talking to believers, Christians. Maybe not, but that dramatically impacts how we're going to read the rest of the book. All right? Keep that in your mind. Here we go. Let's go back to it. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling... Consider Jesus. That word consider means to contemplate. Sit down and get your mind wrapped around it until you see that the very purpose for why he came and he exists is real to you. It does not mean, hey, take a look at Jesus. The reason why that's important to say is because many of us are so apathetic in our study or our understanding of God, we kind of go, oh, I get it, whatever. No. Get your head wrapped around who Jesus is. Get your head wrapped around what the Bible says. Know what's going on. Why? Because we have a tendency not to care enough, not to pay attention enough. I don't like all that academic stuff. I don't like all that learning stuff. You know what? This is a relationship with the Almighty God who has revealed Himself. What better things do you have to do than to know the God that created you? It's a relationship issue. Consider Jesus. Contemplate Jesus. And then he gives them two definitions or two descriptions. Jesus, an apostle or the apostle. Now, this is the only time in the entire Bible that Jesus is called an apostle. Why? Because every other time you use the word apostle, those are the people that hung out with Jesus, right? Jesus wasn't an apostle. The guys who followed Jesus and were called personally by Jesus, that's who we call apostle. So why is this guy saying it that way? Because he's coming from an Old Testament mindset. In an Old Testament mindset, he's using apostle for its basic definition. What does it mean? It means one sent out on behalf of somebody else. In an Old Testament mindset, if you just talked about God and now mention an apostle, that means one sent by God. Yeah? And what does that mean? It means he's an ambassador. Here's what's loaded in that one phrase. What does an ambassador do? At least two things. One, 
speaks on behalf of who sent him. That means that Jesus speaks for the heavens. That means whatever comes out of his mouth, he is speaking on behalf of God who sent him. And it means, number two, that when you speak, you carry all the authority of the one who sent you. That means when Jesus speaks, it's not his opinion. It is now the very force of all of God's power behind him and authority. One simple phrase. He's not just an apostle of God. He's our high priest. And we talked a lot about that last week, so I don't want to get into it too much. But I merely want to tell you this. What do priests do? Priests talk to God on behalf of people. And priests talk to people on behalf of God. Jesus is our high priest. The funny little irony of that phrase, in my opinion, and maybe I'm making too much of it, so take this with a grain of salt. But I think it's intriguing that he's trying to say Jesus is more important than Moses and then calls Jesus the high priest. Why? Because Moses never was. Who was the high priest? Aaron, his brother. So just a side note of going, oh, by the way, Moses wasn't the high priest. His brother was. Oh, Jesus, he's the high priest over all creation. Little side note. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Our confession, the gospel. Do you know the gospel? It's pretty basic. The Son of God came down approximately 2,000 years ago, lived an earthly life, took on humanity, walked among us, lived a perfect life that someday he would trade with yours, died on the cross for the sins of the world, was buried, rose again from the tomb, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and is interceding from that point for us even now, and one day will return. Amen? That is the gospel. Do you believe it? You must. If you are a Christian, if you are a human being, that is reality. That's what really happened. So, he said, he is the apostle and the high priest of that gospel. He's what it's all about. What else did he do? Verse 2. Who was faithful to him who appointed him? Who appointed him? The Father. Jesus did exactly what the Father wanted every time. Just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. So they're linked in the sense that Moses obeyed God. Jesus obeyed God. So in that sense, they're similar. God gave Moses not only the law, but God gave Moses the details to build the tabernacle. Do you remember that? He gave it to him. You got to make it like this, the wood like this. You got to put the curtains like this. You got to make it this big. And Moses did it to a T. But more than that, Moses did his best to be obedient to the Father. But was he perfect? No. As a matter of fact, the author of Hebrews is going to bring out Moses' greatest failure to obey. Hmm. Just as Moses was faithful in all God's house, verse 3, for Jesus. Now we're going to compare the two. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by somebody, but the builder of all things is God. What does that mean? It means glory is what shines forth and makes you look good. And we're talking about God. Who represents God best? Jesus is so much more powerfully a representative of God than Moses. 
So much so, it's almost like you walk up and see this beautiful house designed in an architecturally brilliant manner. You walk up, you see the house, you go, wow, what's your next question? Who built that? Because you know that if they build that, they probably also have the genius to build more stuff like that. And you would look and say, as amazing as a house is, the heart and mind that designed it is far greater. Same thing here. Moses is impressive. Jesus made him. So isn't he more impressive? Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses was a good servant. He was a higher gun. He was from outside. God calls him and says, hey, I need you to do this, 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 and this, which ultimately will be fulfilled in who? Jesus. But you've done a great job. The fact that I called you and you responded and you did what I asked you to do, that's brilliant. But Jesus is even greater. Look at the next phrase. But Christ is also faithful over God's house, but as a son. He's coming from the inside. He's a designer. He's part of the family. He's the owner. So when he manages, it's a whole different ball game. He's not a hired gun. And then he takes the metaphor and spins it one more time. And we are his house. Wait, what? You all know the phrase, right? In the New Testament, it says we, like living stones, are being built together to be a place where God dwells, right? We know that. And then check this out. We always have this kind of dumbed down version of, kind of childlike of, I asked Jesus into my heart. Kind of like, well, he has nothing else to do today. So he's going to come hang out with me because I'm super fun. <laughs> Let me give you a little different perspective. Do you remember when Moses received the law of God? He was up on a mountain. What did the mountain look like? Smoke, fire, lightning, right? Peals of thunder, rumbling, scary smoke, that kind of stuff. That's the presence of God. When we get into the tabernacle or the temple, there's this big, huge, thick curtain that says, do not enter. Don't you dare get near the presence of God. He will blow you up. Inside that holy of holies, only one guy can go one time a year. Why? Because the presence of God is so intense and so powerful and so mighty. Isn't it a shock then on Pentecost when Jesus indwelt people? What? God went internal? That power dwells within us? That's radical. Yeah? Oh, it's no simple thing. The same power of God on Mount Sinai dwells within the heart of man? Hmm. And we are his house. What's the next word? If. Ooh, that's a tough word. Two-letter word. Screws up everything. <laughs> and we are his house if... Indeed, we hold fast our confidence, our courage, and our boasting in our hope. All right, we run into a challenge. Let's talk about it for a second. The word if is one of the most difficult words in all of Hebrews. It is the reason for a majority of controversy. It is the reason why Hebrews was held out from even being included in the Bible for almost 200 years. The word if 
changes everything. And you go, what, what, do you, what do you mean? All right, well, let's play the game because you got two options at least on what if means. Either if means proof. You go, wow, all right, let me read it. Is the author saying that, hey, if we make it and these things happen, that is evidence or proof that we are really Christ. If you make it, it's clear that you were legit. That means it's an explanation. You don't need to do anything about it. It's telling you, hey, the more you stick in there, the more confidence grows that you are truly saved. Is that what it means? And here's how it would sound if I was to read it that way. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Did you hear it that way? That's one way you can read it. Or you can read it like this. Is the word if... Does it mean adherence? Here's how it would sound. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Do you understand how it just changed? In that way, the author is saying we will receive what is promised if we adhere to the process to receive that reward. For example, the doctor would say, hey, I can cure that cough if you follow this medicine. Right? Listen, we're still going to fix it, but I need you to follow the regimen so that it would be so. I'll take care of it for you. If you do what I asked. If that's the case, then it's a warning. It's a warning requiring action on our behalf. The more you cling to the Lord, the more you're assured of salvation. That word if is what we're going to consistently wrestle with back and forth. We are going to talk about that issue head on 100% when we get to chapter 6. So we're not going to do it right now, but I need you to understand that we're building cases to understand it later. So I need you to figure out, what do you think? How do you read it? What do you see? What appears most logical? What appears right? What matches up with Scripture? Let that go through your mind. Let's dive into verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, wait, oh, he did it again. He's quoting Psalm 95. He knows where it's coming from. Everybody knows that that was the psalmist that wrote it. But does he care? Nope. Did God write it or did God not write it? If God wrote it, then quit talking about who the human author was. Anyway, the Holy Spirit said, quoting Old Testament. Wow, that's pretty powerful, yeah? Psalm 95, 7 through 11, quote, Today, if you hear his voice, God is saying, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test, meaning your forefathers, your ancient Jewish forefathers, they put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation, and I said, they always go astray in their heart, they have not known my ways, and I swore in my wrath, they shall not Enter my rest. All right, let me bring us up to speed. History time again. There's three particular stories you need to know because he just referred to all three of them. Ready? They all have to do with Moses. Here's how the story goes. Moses goes in as the deliverer. The plagues rain down. They get to get out of Egypt. The Red Sea opens up, smashes the Egyptians. The Israelites are now in the desert. They go and they culminate and organize and huddle together around Mount Horeb. They have dialogues about what's next and dialogues about God and with God and talking about what they need to be doing. 
And then it says, God says, I want to show you something. I want you to go to this promised land. The Bible says it was an 11-day journey from Mount Horeb to the promised land. How long? 11 days. Hey, walk, walk, walk. Check it out. Here's the promised land. You guys, this is where I want you to go. The people are like, hmm, looks kind of big. We got to send out some spies. So they send out 12 spies. Everybody remember this story? The spies go out and... Ten of them come back with a bad report. Man, it is awesome in there, but there are like huge people. They will squish us. We are not equipped for this. We've been slaves our whole lives. We are not warriors. It's not going to happen. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, come back and say, let's go. Who cares whether or not we're equipped? God is on our side. Of course we're going to go into the promised land. Let's get them, right? Whole nation is like, you two are stupid. You guys seem to have a head on straight. So you know what? No, I don't want to go either. And Israel decides they're not going to do that. And God said, you're not going in, huh? Guess what? That's deeper than you know. You doubt me? You doubt my provision. You know what? You're never getting in. Here's what's going to happen. 11-day trip to get here, guess what it's going to take to get back here? 40 years. One day for every day those spies were in that land. I will wait you out till every single one of you that defied me is dead because you're not getting in. Your kids will get in. You're not going in. Joshua and Caleb, they'll get in, but none of the rest of you. You're done. Wow. All right? That's one story. That's when he swore you will not enter my rest. All right, here's the other two stories. When they first got into the desert, remember, let's say we're assuming 600,000 people. Moses is trying to get through of all various ages. He's trying to get them and their animals and all this stuff to go into the desert. What's your first two problems? You need at least food and water. Can we all track with that? Where are you going to get a food supply for 600,000 people? Even if everybody brought sandwiches with the crust cut off, you can eat that maybe like the first day. What are you going to eat on like day 13? Not only that, but you can last only about three days without water. So you now just went out of Egypt. You show up. One of the first things they run into, they came upon a water supply. It was bad. Moses had to talk to God about it. God fixed it, made the water sweet. They could drink. That's awesome unless you move on. When you walk away from a water supply, what do you need next? Another water supply, right? So as they're going through, they get hungry. Hey, we don't even have a food supply. God kicks down one of the most amazing miracles ever known as manna. He creates a stuff where in the morning it just, it's on the ground right? It's like the angels are like putting it out, right? They can cook it and make it. Now they have food following them everywhere they go in the desert. That's pretty cool. But then they run out of water again. And at this time they're ticked off. They say, Moses, we hate you. You're a terrible leader. I don't even think God's with us. If he is, he's a terrible leader. And you know what? What are you going to do? Bring us out here and kill us? This whole thing is dismal, man. I just want to go back to bondage. At least I had water. Now Moses is distraught. He goes to God and he says, God, they want to stone me. 
They're ready to kill me over this whole thing. And God said, hold on, I have a plan. See that staff in your hand, the one that you parted the Red Sea with? I want you to go over to that rock face. I want you to strike the rock and water will pour out of it. Moses is like, awesome. So he goes out. I don't know if he said awesome, but that's what I said. So he goes out. I would think it would be awesome. And he strikes the rock. Water pours out. Yay, everybody's happy, right? Oh, we didn't think you could do that. All right. That's at the beginning of their wandering. At the end of their wandering, almost 40 years later, we have the exact same scenario come up. Why did the author pick those two? To say, listen, same scenario from the beginning to the end, they still didn't learn anything. They're still hassling God. They're still irritating him. They're still not listening to him. So sure enough, we get towards the end. But this time, Moses is livid. Moses is so done with these people He's so frustrated and angry. So he and God, they're railing back and forth and getting mad and everything. And he says, God, what am I going to do? We don't have any water again. And God said, all right, we're going to do the water rock thing. Moses is like, okay, that's great. And then he says, but here's the thing, Moses. And Moses is like, blah, 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 not listening very well. And he said, Moses, real quick, I want you to go out and I want you to talk to the rock and water will pour out. And he's like, whatever. And he walks out. And he goes out there, he's like, you want water? You can't handle my water. And he's like, ah, and he starts smacking the rock, right? And you're like, and now water pours out. And everyone's like, yay, the water thing. God goes, come here for a second. Yeah, what's up? What's up? We did the water thing. Whoa, yeah, that was awesome. What did I ask you to do? Told me to do the water rock thing. How? I don't know. Wasn't really listening. I'm pretty sure it was hit the rock like last time. It was not hit the rock like last time. It was talk to the rock. What you think that they're being rebellious and not listening and I'm going to punish them and I'm not punishing you? You think you're above that? Oh, you can just get angry and in your anger you can blow off all my restrictions. Who's God? Me or you? You didn't listen to me, boy. I don't care how old you are. You 120 years old? I've always been. Do not disobey me do not blow off what i tell you to do if i give you a command you say yes sir do you understand this yes sir you're not getting in either no promised land for you you can see it you're not getting in because i'm not allowing someone that is going to defy my word receive my reward like that Ooh. Whoops. Indeed, he died at 120 on a mountain, Mount Nebo, overlooking the promised land at the age of 120. Guess who buried him? God. Because that's his buddy. Verse 12. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. What do they mean by heart mind will emotions yeah but exhort one another every day what does that mean it means you need me and i need you hey i appreciate you attend church and you get something out of it and then you go home that's not church i appreciate you love to hear it on the radio and that you enjoy the messages that's not church 
Church is the fact that you're involved in each other's lives. Church is about establishing relationships where someone can get in your face, whether for positive or negative. We need encouragement from one another because the Christian life under the temptation and pressures of the world is very difficult. And I need you backing me up going, dude, don't walk away. What are you talking about? You can't do that. Do you understand what that would mean? I need someone with me, talking to me, telling me to keep going when things are difficult, when it feels like you don't even want to do this anymore, when you're going through hard times and your life is falling apart, you need a surrounding support network. That's church. Exhort each other every day, as long as it is called today. You know what that means? It means while you still can. You don't even know if you have the rest of today. If God calls you, you say yes, no matter what that is. That means you don't wait for me to allow you to raise your hand and come down the aisle to receive Jesus Christ. If Jesus is tapping on the door to your heart and he's saying, hey, you know, you don't know all this Christian thing. You need me. I'm your Lord and Savior. I died for you. I want to forgive your sins. Guess what? You go home or you do it right now. You go home and you say, yes, Lord, I don't have it all fixed. I don't have all the answers. I don't have any of this stuff, but I know what I know. And all I know is that you love me and you died for me. So I want you to be the master of me. You start there. You don't wait. Oh, I'll probably figure that one out tomorrow. And you die today. And what does that mean? Take care of brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. When you blow it off once, it's sure easier to blow it off again. For we have come to share in Christ, partakers of that divine nature, being part of the family of God. Oh, look at the next word. What is it? If. For we have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Listen, no matter where you're going to end up on this issue of you can lose your salvation, you can't lose your salvation, that will hit head on, as I told you. What I don't want us to do is have an argument about faith versus works here. Where we'll just go, well, you know what, if I got to cling to Jesus and, and that's works and God said that it's all by grace and it's not by work. Hold on. Let me clear that one up. If you're drowning and Jesus goes, hey, here's a life preserver. Hang on to it. You know what? I'm not doing that. That's a lot of works. I thought you were going to save me. I thought about, shut up. Here's the ring. Hang on to it. I'm going to pull you to shore. Look, if I pull the ring away, you die. I'm saving you. It's not you. And that's how it works. What, just because you go, thank you for saving me. If I say, hey, can I pull you out of that pit? Raise your hand up. Listen, don't get an attitude with God about what you will and will not do. Here's the bottom line. From whatever God's viewpoint is, here's your viewpoint. I need help. Hang on to the hem garment of Jesus. The woman that was bleeding didn't go, you know what? I'm not touching him. That's works. Blah, 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 blah. She ran up and grabbed onto the edge of his garment and she was healed. So whatever that means for you, do it. Yeah. It moves on. It says this, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. 
All right. Last challenge as we close up. We already talked about that there's at least one major question. Who's he talking to? Right? Does it apply to you? Does it not apply to you? All right? That's one question. The second key question is this. What's at stake? What did Israel lose due to their unbelief? Because here's what he said. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Meaning something bad happened. Their bad hearts screwed something up. What is the warning for us? Well, I don't know. What did Israel lose? And you go, well, Lance, that's obvious. Let's just follow the metaphor. All right, let's do that. So here's the traditional view, right? So Israel was in bondage to, to Egypt, right? Oh, that's like us. We're unsaved and we don't know anything about it. And we can't solve it ourselves. We're complete slaves and we need a deliverer to come save us. Oh, look, then they got us out. God did something amazing, broke the enemy, allowed us to walk. And then we try to figure out our walk with God as we're going through the wilderness and he's revealing himself. And then we come up to the river. Ooh, that's death. Because then there's a Jordan River into the promised land. Then we cross through death and we end up into the rest, the promised land that's heaven. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. Is it that obvious? Because that's some people's view. Because the ones that sinned didn't get into the promised land. You know what that would mean? If the promised land is heaven, then that whole generation didn't get in. Are you tracking? Or does the story go like this? Because here's the problem with calling the promised land heaven. When they got into the promised land, was it a done deal? Were they good? Did they immediately rest? No, they fought and fought and fought to get rid of the enemies that are in there. Uh-oh. I don't think there's enemies in heaven that you're going to need to battle and fight and strain through, right? You sure it's heaven? What if it is about process? What if it is about the idea that the promised land is about blessing? What if the promised land is about the victory that we can have here in this world? And it's not talking about heaven. What if we need to fight through different addictions and challenges and struggles and Jesus wants to bring in victory into our life. Is that the analogy? Depends on how you want to look at it. Final three verses, verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? Meaning Moses was a great leader, but you know what? They rebelled. With whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? but those who were disobedient. Bottom line for this author is verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. What does that mean? I don't know. But I know what it means for you. It means that if God is tapping on the door to your heart, open the door. That's what I know it means. Let's close in prayer and I'll give you your final challenge. Heavenly Father, thank you for a walk through history with you, a walk into your word, the ability to see that you're calling out to man, engaging with us on a personal level, that you are God and we are not, that you are the Savior and we are not. Father, we submit ourselves to you and we struggle to understand your word. Please bring about illumination. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Closing challenge is this. This year in the year of faithfulness, we must be faithful to let the word speak to us directly. Don't be looking at your neighbor. Don't be assuming that I'm talking to somebody else. I'm talking to you. 
And that means we sit underneath the word of God that when he says change, we say yes. When he says, I don't like that, we say, I'm sorry. Our challenge here is to not just allow anything to be academic, but everything to be transformational. Amen? Amen. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.